the Bible Study Podcast, Episode 76. Today, the Bible Study Podcast continues to talk about leadership and looks at Nehemiah. Welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. As we continue on looking at leadership, I want to look at a particular example, and this was an idea that I got from Richard Mock, who's a pastor at Cathedral of Faith, who I do ministry with at Juvenile Hall, and he said they were doing a study on the leadership of Nehemiah right around the time that I was talking about the Bible study and leadership, and that seemed like a really good example. And the reason why is Nehemiah had a very specific problem he was trying to solve, and the problem he's trying to solve is not something he could solve alone. And that's exactly the kind of problem that causes the need for or the rising up of leaders, and in this case, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah did a lot of things very well, so let's look at what happened. Starting with Nehemiah 1, what we learn is that Nehemiah is not in Judah, the land of his birth, but he is a remnant that has been removed to the Babylonian captivity, which was ended when the Persians took over, and he is in service to the king. And word reaches him of what's going on in Judah. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Just stopping there for a minute. So he hears that back in Judah, things are in bad shape. And the number one thing he hears is that the wall has been broken down for Jerusalem. So there's no protection for the people there. And they are both in disgrace and they're in danger. And his reaction is interesting because, first of all, he mourns. He breaks down and weeps, and then he fasts and prays. So before he goes and does anything else, and I think this is a good sign of spiritual leadership, he checks to see whether this is a problem that he is intended to solve, or he adds his contribution to the problem through fasting and prayer. In the midst of the fasting and prayer, it seems that he is then led to do something about this, and his prayer goes like this, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So he says this prayer. He says to God, you were right to do what you did. 
You punished us by spreading us far and wide, by taking us into exile, but you also promised that you would restore if we turn back to you. And now Nehemiah is turning back to God, and he is also praying for those of his brothers and sisters who are turning back to God, saying, remember your promise that you would restore us and bring us home again. And then he is praying for success in presence of this man and tells us he's the cupper of the king because sometime in the midst of his mourning and fasting and prayer he has come up with a plan and he has come up with a calling that he is going to do something about this and he is going to go to the king and that's what he does in Nehemiah 2. The king sees him and sees that he looks sad and so he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king says, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. So even in the midst of talking to the king, he's still praying. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king just wants to know, how long will your journey take, and when will you come back? And so he gave the king a timetable and gets from the king letters to go to the governors in that particular province that says that he is on a mission for the king. Now, cupbearer is a very favored task. A cupbearer is someone who stands between the king and someone who might poison him. It's someone who is probably doing royal tasting, but at least is a, a butler to him or is close at his hand at all times. And so it is a position of favor. And because of this, he is able to use his influence with the king to get approval to go and do what he wants to do. So he's First of all, he's come to God and he's made sure that his plan is God's plan. And then he's come to the king and he's gotten the resources he needs to accomplish what he needs to do. Now, he still hasn't gotten the people to do it. And that's where his leadership is really going to come into play. Continuing on in chapter 2, the first thing he does is he tries to make sure that he understands how big the problem is. Before he tries to get people interested or excited about solving this problem, he has to figure out how big it is. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the wall of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So now we have examined the problem And we've gotten the people together. says, this is our problem. Jerusalem is ruins. We're in disgrace. Let's us do something about it. And they say yes. But almost immediately, we get opposition. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, what is this you are doing? They said, are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim 
or historic right to it. So almost immediately, he's got problems with the neighbors. He's got problems with his plan and his vision and his idea of what Jerusalem should be is very much opposed to the neighbors who want to continue to see Jerusalem weak and the Israelites weak. And part of the reason that we need leaders in the church, in the home, in the business, wherever you are, is that most plans don't continue on without problems. There's a saying in the army that no no plan survives its contact with the enemy. That basically leadership isn't just about making plans, although that's important and what Nehemiah has done is important that he's laid the groundwork by making a plan of what he's going to do. He's gotten the people involved, but then he also has to deal with what happens when there are problems. What happens in this case when there is opposition? It might be a technical problem. It might be a resource problem. There's all sorts of different things, some that can come from poor planning, obviously, but also in this case, what he's trying to do, some people don't want to see him succeed at. A couple interesting things to see as we look at some of the next chapters of Nehemiah, and we're not going to finish this today. It says things like, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanah. They built its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired the next section. Next to him was, and then he goes on through which people had which section and he's basically laid them out by clan he has organized them he hasn't just planned it originally he has some organizational skills too so he has a gift of leadership and probably also of administration and he says basically you group a family group you build here you family group you build here and so they tackle this problem in an organized fashion they know what they're trying to do they know what the opposition is they organized to complete that task. And that also is the role of a leader. With that, I'm going to bring this episode of the Bible Study Podcast to a close, and we'll continue on the story of Nehemiah next week as he faces additional opposition, and what does he do about it? Feel free to leave a comment at thebiblestudypodcast.com or send me an email at host at thebiblestudypodcast.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Have you ever felt conflict between your faith and feelings? If so, you're not alone. My name's Carly Mercouillier. I'm a licensed therapist and the host of the Therapy and Theology podcast, where we explore popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. I want to invite you to join me every Thursday as we fearlessly name the complexities of our reality, grow in the awareness of who we are, and rediscover the power and purpose of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. Subscribe today at lifeaudio.com.